you want to find your place in your Bible, the first Corinthians chapter 15. I told you a few weeks back that these last chapters of first Corinthians, I was going to sort of back out and look at them in an overview fashion and not drill down and look at some of or all of the details, but I just have to tell you that I've got to change my mind when it comes to 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to spend at least three messages from 1 Corinthians 15 and maybe more. So we're going to be a little longer than I anticipated this series going. I'd hope to finish by Labor Day, but we're going to be a little longer than that because I think this chapter is so vitally important. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 And I want to begin reading in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried... Uh, that he was uh, buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What a great phrase. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it be I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. Let's pray together. Lord, we've just been singing, uh, you won't fail. And Lord, we look at the resurrection. Many thought that that was the end. But it was promised that you would rise again, and you did, and you did not fail. And because you rose again, we have all of these incredible promises that you've bestowed upon us. I pray, Lord, that as we look today at the gospel, at least part of the gospel, I pray that you'll speak to our hearts. There are some who are listening to my voice today who have never had a personal encounter with the gospel themselves. Today could be the day of salvation. And I pray, Lord, that they will hear what the Spirit of God is saying to them. And for all of us who are believers Lord, you've given us the Lord's Supper to bring us back again and again and again to the gospel and to remind us of the price that you paid for us. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to never drift from the reality of what you did in sacrificing yourself for us and in rising again. Please, Lord, speak through me today and use me as your instrument to touch the hearts of your people on this day. In your name I pray, amen. There's an old saying that an illustration is to a sermon what a window is to a house. That is, it lets the light in so that people can see and they can understand what you're talking about so that they can apply it to their lives. Well, today's message is going to be one of those messages where I'm not going to be using a lot of outside windows, a lot of illustrations. And the reason is because the story itself that we're going to be reviewing is window enough. The story itself is the very light of God that is shining on us today. When you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you realize that 
this chapter is one of those famous chapters in the scripture. When you think about famous chapters, for instance, when you think about love, you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. When you think about a list of names of uh, the great saints of old, the heroes of the faith, you, you think of Hebrews chapter 11. Or when you think about creation and how everything came to be as it is, you think of Genesis 1. Or you, you think about the incarnation, that he left heaven's glory, robed himself in flesh to live amongst us, and we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of God. You think of John chapter 1, or you think about the shepherd psalm. Inevitably, you come to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and many of us can quote that from memory. Or Romans chapter 8, that is the great chapter about eternal security. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Well, in that same vein of great chapters is this chapter, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul devotes 58 verses to the resurrection, to the resurrection of Christ and to what the resurrection means to us and to what the resurrection means to our departed loved ones who were believers in Jesus. 58 verses uh, he gives to us about this subject uh, of the resurrection. And actually, if you noticed at the beginning of chapter 15, it, verse 1, he says, Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you stand, but which you're saved, if you hold fast that which I've preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you, and here's the phrase, first of all. That's a single, that's the translation of a single Greek word. In other words, he's telling you that what he's about to tell you is the foremost of the things he wants them to know. The word means literally the most important thing that I can impart to you. In other words, when he came to the city of Corinth and he spent 18 months there preaching, this was at the top of the list. And even if he wasn't speaking on this particular subject as the main topic of the subject, whatever he was speaking on ended up coming back to this because this is of first importance. This is the most important of all. This is the foremost thing that I have to say to you. This is, as he says in verse 3, first of all. That in and of itself reminds us how significant and how important the context and the meaning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the city of Corinth, a city that was about 75 to 80 miles from Athens, it was a Greek city, it was a part of Greece. And in uh, Greece in that day, they did not believe in the resurrection. You may remember, some of you who've read through the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul was in Athens and he was preaching in Athens and he preached about the resurrection, that they scoffed at, them, at him. Many of them did. They scoffed at him for preaching about the resurrection. And the reason is because the Greek people thought that the body was a prison, and it was a prison from which they wanted to be able to escape. And the whole idea of a physical body in eternity was simply foolishness to them. Why would you want this body in eternity? By the way, we don't have this exact body. We have a new and glorified body in eternity. But why would you want this body in eternity? We want to escape this body. And that whole thinking about there being no resurrection because they didn't want the body, they wanted to escape the body, is something, a teaching, a philosophy that had crept into the, first, into the church at Corinth. And there were some amongst them who were saying that there is no resurrection. And of course, Paul will go on to say if there's no resurrection, then there is no resurrection of Jesus. And if there's no resurrection of Jesus, there is no hope for any of us. 
But this philosophy had crept into the church that there is no resurrection. We don't want these physical bodies after this world. We want to escape them. They are the prisons in which we live. And there were people who were teaching that kind of a thing. And so for 58 verses, the Apostle Paul comes back to the whole matter of the resurrection over and over and over again. And he begins by talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the very heart at the very core of what he's going to say is the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters and so as he opens this chapter he tells us what's most important what message that he is delivering is the most important message and it's summarized around four words two of which we'll see today two of which we'll see next week look at verse 3 again he says, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died. Circle that word. That's the word, died. That's the first word. He died. It goes on in verse uh, 4, and was buried. That's the second word. We're going to look at that word today, buried. He continues, and that he rose. There's the third word. He rose the third day. We'll look at that word next week. And then four times, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, it says he was seen. He was seen. He was seen. He was seen. I want you to think with me for a few minutes. If this message is the primary message, if this message is the most important message that can be delivered, the most important message that Paul delivered, and at the heart of this message is the resurrection of Jesus, what are, if we can take it for a moment, the particulars of the gospel? What are the particulars of the gospel? Well, first of all, it is that Jesus died. Let's make no mistake about it. Jesus died. Nobody argues that aspect. They may argue the resurrection. Nobody argues that he lived, and nobody argues that he died. But the reality is, part of the gospel, the very first of the aspects of the gospel we have to understand is that Jesus died on that cross. First of all, it was planned. This death that Jesus died was planned. It's not an accident. It's not something that God said, oops, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. This was something that in eternity passed. And while I understand when you're in eternity, there is no past, present, and future. But from our perspective, in eternity past, God had already predetermined that his son was going to come and that his son was going to die. Listen to it, Acts 22 verses 22 to 24, where the apostle Paul is preaching to thousands of Jews that have gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and he's telling them about the story of Jesus. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him, that's Christ, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. He didn't absolve those who had taken him by their hands and put him to death, but he reminded them that you weren't in control. That long before you even existed, before anything even existed, God had already predetermined that his son was going to die. In Revelation 13, 18, John writing says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. Now listen, slain from the foundation of the world. Do you realize that before God spoke anything into existence, before there was an Adam and Eve in the garden, before there was a sin that was committed first by Eve and followed by Adam, before mankind was plunged into sin, before there was a Bible that was ever written, before there were millions and billions of people who, who've lived on this planet, before any of that ever took place, it was already decided that Jesus was going to die. Before God created the first man, 
Adam. He already knew that he'd need a Savior. He knew that Adam would disobey him and plunge all of mankind under the curse of sin. And so God, in eternity past, designed a plan by which he could righteously and justly redeem him. And that everyone that believed in his son after him could have everlasting life. Do you find that amazing? It's very much like an architect draws up his plans. I've worked with architects on a time, a, a few times in the course of building things. And it's interesting how an architect works. He understands, first of all, what must be accomplished. He can't design a building if he doesn't know what the building is supposed to do and how it's supposed to function. He, he understands what must be accomplished. But then, secondly, he sees what others cannot yet see. He looks at that piece of property and the lay of the land, and he's thinking about what has to be accomplished. And in his mind, he's beginning to see a, a building that comes into existence before him. But then thirdly, he develops a, a detailed plan to meet the need. If you've ever seen building plans, page after page after page of blueprints that have the different kinds of systems that are going to be placed into that building, and he writes out that detailed plan, and then he sets aside the means to be able to accomplish that purpose. He's got to have the right builders, and he's got to have the, the money that's necessary to, to be able to accomplish that. But then what does he do? He executes his plan. That's what the Scripture is telling us when it says that Jesus died, that he was crucified before the foundation of the earth, that God, the great architect, knew exactly what would need to be done. He had already laid out everything that was necessary, put all of the blueprints in place, everything that he needed to accomplish the task, and then he executed the plan. And the ultimate of that execution of that plan was the execution of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary at Golgotha. In other words, the Holy Trinity in eternity past set in motion the divine plan that would demonstrate the great love of God through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Not only was it planned, it was prophesied, his death. It not only was planned, it was prophesied. All across the pages of your Bible, you see the Scripture telling us again and again, by the way, you want the blueprint? Here it is. Chapter after chapter and page after page, this is the blueprint that God has written out for us of how he's going to deliver us from sin. It was planned, and it was prophesied, and in this plan, this blueprint that he's given to us again and again, he tells us that Jesus is going to die. Do you know the earliest mention of a coming Savior and Messiah is Genesis 3.15? In chapter 3, verse 15, he mentions that Messiah. When you get to Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, he talks about the when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. you. Remember when the Jews were to escape Egypt, they had to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it on the doorpost and the lintel. And the death angel, when the death angel passed over, he would see the blood. And the firstborn in that house where the blood had been applied would not die. Do you realize that that's a picture of Jesus Christ and what Jesus Christ was going to do for us? Or you get to Leviticus 16, and you're introduced to Aaron, who takes two goats to the altar of God. One of them he sacrifices, because the wages of sin is what, church? The wages of sin is death. But then he takes the other goat, and he sends it away, because our sins are sent away from us through the death of Jesus. Or you get to Psalm 22, verse 16, and you find the description of Jesus' crucifixion more than a 1,000 years before crucifixion was even invented. Or you get to Isaiah 53, the most graphic depiction of the death of Jesus, nearly 700 years before Jesus would come in Bethlehem. Isaiah is telling us exactly what's going to happen to Jesus and that he's going to die. Or you listen to David in Psalm 22, verse 1. And he cries out the words that Jesus cries out 
on the cross of Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'll go on in that same chapter, chapter 22, which is an incredible messianic psalm. He'll go on to talk about them casting lots for his clothing, about his enemies that will mock him. In all of that, I remind you, a thousand years or more before Christ is ever born in Bethlehem, or you get to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 20, and he predicts that he's going to be pierced. His hands and his feet are going to be pierced. Or in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, he says that his back is going to be beaten, his beard is going to be plucked from his face, and he's going to be spat upon by those who see him in his suffering. It was the psalmist, I remind you, that said that the Messiah's legs would not be broken. Not a bone of his body would be broken. Psalm 34, verse 20. It was prophesied. When Paul talks about the death and he says, this is the most important thing that I can tell you about. There is no message that I'm delivering to you that is more important than this message. And the very first of the points of this message is that Jesus died. It was planned. It was prophesied. In other words, from Genesis to Malachi, there are more than 300 specific prophecies detailing the different aspects of the then coming Messiah. Do you think Paul got it? Paul demonstrated in his own writings by quoting from the Old Testament that he knew the death of Jesus was proclaimed in the law, that it was pictured in the Psalms, and that it was predicted by the prophets. The death of Jesus is no mistake. It is no accident. It is no oops. I wish that hadn't happened. It was predetermined before time even began that Jesus was going to die. And that's the essence of this first particular of the gospel. Before the world's foundation was was laid, God, who was moved by love and compassion, worked out a plan to reconcile the world to himself through the death of his son. But not only was it planned and purposeful, not only was it planned and prophesied, it was purposeful. It had a purpose. You know, death is an ugly thing, isn't it? But the death of Jesus had a very particular purpose. There was something that God was seeking to accomplish through the death of his son. And we could talk about the physical suffering of Jesus, and that's where we spend most of the time in movies that we've seen in recent years about the crucifixion of Jesus, or even in the depictions that you have in a church, uh, drama uh, 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 plays about the the death of Jesus. We, We focus on the physical suffering. Sometimes we focus on the emotional suffering, what it must have been like to have been alone, and nobody's standing with you, and you're all by yourself. And we focus on the physical and emotional, but have you stopped to think about the spiritual suffering? Because that's the real core of the issue. Jesus had been in the upper room with his disciples when he institutes the Lord's Supper. They had been observing Passover. When they finish, they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. He, leads, he leaves them a little distance away, and he goes deeper into the garden, and he falls down, and he begins to pray. And he says, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. This cup pass from me. He says it three times. What is it that's in that cup that Jesus doesn't want to drink? It has nothing to do with his physical suffering or his emotional suffering. What is it that's in that cup that Jesus doesn't want to drink? It's the darkness of all mankind's depraved sins, all mankind's depraved sins, And he's going to have to turn up that cup, and he's going to have to drink it all himself. You understand that he's going to experience something that he, as God, has never before experienced in his death. Listen to how the Bible puts it. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, Himself bore our sins in his own body. Hear those words. He bore our sins. 
Or, or consider 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he made him, that is, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you hear those two verses? What is it that's in that cup? It is the sin, the depravity of all mankind that he's going to have to drink on our behalf. And he's going to bear our sins. He's even going to become sin for us. The very thing that God most detests, sin. Jesus became and Jesus bore in our place. And that's what we call in theology the vicarious atonement or the substitutionary atonement. It's one person taking upon himself what the others deserved to suffer themselves. And on that cross, Jesus became our Passover lamb. All of those years, those centuries that had gone before, lambs were sacrificed. Passover lambs were sacrificed because those lambs could never once and for all take away mankind's sins. But Jesus, who was the sinless son of God, the perfect lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus, once and for all, for all time, paid the penalty in his suffering and in his death on that cross. Once for all. So that there never had to be another lamb sacrificed. And there would never be another, there would never be another one like Jesus that would be sacrificed. Such that when you hear his words on the cross of Calvary, you need to hear them differently than most people hear them. When he says and he cries out what the psalmist said he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you understand that in those moments on the cross, the one who knew no sin calls out using the language of a sinner himself? You go back and read the, the, the life of Jesus and the gospels about Jesus and you'll find him going to prayer over and over and he speaks of him as my father, my father, my father, my father, my father. But hanging on that cross, drinking that cup full of the depravity and the punishment of the sin that we deserve that Jesus bore and became for us in those moments, he cried out with the very words, that you and I cry out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't calling him Father because in those moments he was bearing and becoming our sin. And the only one who could pay that penalty in full was the sinless, righteous one. If any others of us had been on that cross, we would have been receiving what we rightfully deserved. And that was the great agony of the cross. The long-awaited Christ who had lived sinlessly was being crucified for our sins. At Calvary, it pleased God to crush his only son under the weight of his just and holy and righteous anger against our sins. Our sins. God satisfied his righteous wrath. He appeased his own justice and he made a way to forgive sinful mankind and still be holy. But he had to do it through the death of his son, through the death of his son. You ask the question, why would Jesus do that? Why would you leave the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the wonder of heaven? Why would you robe yourself in flesh and be subjected to such, uh, such a horrible suffering? Why would you go through dying, drinking from a cup from which you have never drunk before? the depraved sins of all of mankind, bearing our sins and becoming sin for us. Why would you do that? And the answer is simple. It really is. It's simple. I mean, it's simple from God's perspective. It's hard for me to understand. It's the word love. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us. He demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. You know there's more than one John 3, 16. 1 John 3, 16 says, For by this we know love. By this we know love. Because he laid down his life for us. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or if you want to put it in other terms, listen to what Peter says in chapter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Now here it comes, that he might bring us to God. Oh man that he might bring us to God. I mean, God loves us and wants us to come to him to be forgiven and made right. He has paid it all on the cross of Calvary. And Paul says, listen, we're going to talk about this chapter, 58 verses about the resurrection, but there can be no resurrection if there is no death. And the most important message I deliver to you is the message of the gospel that begins with the death of of Jesus and why did he die he died for your sins and he died for my sins paying a penalty that we owed he bore he became so that he cries out not in the words that we've heard before oh father but he cries out in the words of every sinner my God my God why have you forsaken me? That brings me to a place of just asking a question. Are you right with God? Are you right with God? You understand that if you're not right with God, it's not God's fault. He's done everything there is to do to make it possible for any one of us to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The price has been paid. The cup, he has, he has drunk that cup or drank that cup. He took that cup into himself. All the dregs of our depravity, he took upon himself. He took it upon himself. And on that cross, the righteous, holy justice of God was executed against his own son. The price for your sins is already paid. And if you're not right with God, it's not God's fault. And he did it out of love, saying, I want to bring you to God. I want to reconcile you to God. Are you right with God? Why not? I mean, he's done all of the work so that you only have to do what? Believe. Believe in Jesus for eternal life. That's all you have to do. You say, well, surely there's more to it than that. There isn't more to it than that. It is by believing in Jesus for eternal life. And nobody does that until they recognize they are what, they, what the Bible says we are, sinners lost in our sin. But when you come to the reality of that, you recognize that your only hope is in Jesus, the one who died to pay the penalty of your sin. So the first particular of the gospel is died. Secondly, the second particular of the gospel is buried. Do, do you see it? In verse 4, and that he was buried. He was buried. You and I might consider the idea of burial to be something that would simply be assumed. I mean, when somebody calls me, I've done hundreds of funerals. And when one of your loved ones, or well, not you, I don't want you to die, but when one of your loved ones dies and they call and they say, Pastor, can you help us? Can you come to us? And I pick up my my things that are necessary, and I head towards you. One of the questions I'm going to ask you when we get to talking to each other and have a few moments after the grief, uh, the moments of grief, the initial grief has struck you, where will he or where will she be buried? We automatically assume that people are going to be buried, but that wasn't always true in ancient times. 
If you think about the story, if you know the story, if you don't, let me tell it to you about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. The man named Lazarus was poor. He had nothing. He ate the crumbs that came from the, from the rich man's table. He, he, he ate out of the dumpster. What, whatever was left over. That's what he ate. But the rich man, he fared sumptuously. He had everything he wanted on his table, anything he wanted. And in the text of Scripture, in Luke chapter 16, talking about the rich man and Lazarus, it says about both men that they died because that's, that, that, that's common to every person. It's appointed unto man once to die. Every man dies. And then it says about Lazarus, the next time you see him, you see him in the bosom of Abraham, that's like saying in paradise, or we might think of it as heaven. But you know what it says about the rich man? It says the rich man died and was buried. Do you see the distinction? Not everybody received a proper burial in the ancient world. And actually what God is telling us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he includes in the gospel story this second particular of the gospel that Jesus was buried. He's reminding you that Jesus' body was handled different than many others' bodies were handled. Actually, two times he says here, according to the scripture. He died according to the scripture. He rose again according to the scripture. But do you realize that grammatically and theologically we could include that phrase after he was buried it would do no injustice to the text it would not be adding to the bible to say that christ died according to the scripture he rose according to the scripture and he was buried according to the scripture because he wants you to know that while burial wasn't automatically assumed and not everybody received a proper burial that in fact jesus christ had a proper burial and it's important. First of all, it's important because it fulfills the prophecies that were given about him. But if you don't think it's important, you don't see the significance of it, just listen to the amount of time the four gospel writers give to the burial. In Matthew, we have 18 verses from Christ's arrival at Golgotha till his final breath, but there are 10 verses that deal with the actual burial and the preparation of the body. In Mark, there are 16 verses from the place of the skull to the Lord's death, but there are eight verses that deal with the actual burial and preparation of the body. In Luke, he gives us 14 verses from the arrival at Calvary until his last breath, but there are eight verses about his burial. And in John, it gives us 14 verses that are related to the cross specifically, but there are 12 that are related to his burial. If you add those numbers together, if you're doing the math in your head, that's 100 verses of Scripture, and 38% of them, 38 of the 100, 38% of them are about his burial. Why is his burial so important? Because not everybody got a proper burial. I think it's safe to say that one of the reasons the Bible goes to such great lengths to tell us about the burial of Jesus is because the gospel writers wanted us to know that the body of Jesus was treated respectfully, unlike some others' bodies were treated. The Jewish historian Josephus indicates that the Jews considered it a, a duty to bury their dead. The Jews, a duty to bury their dead. But when it came to the criminals or the poor, they had a burial place way out at a distance where they took those bodies. And the Roman poet and historian Horace talks about the Roman practice of crucifixion and leaving the bodies on the cross, hanging on the cross. And this is what he writes about those bodies. He speaks of them as feeding crows on the cross. But that wasn't the destiny of the body of Jesus. And it's one of the core particulars of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you remember the story, don't you? After Jesus had given up his spirit, he didn't die. Nobody took his life from him. He gave up his spirit 
after he had given up his spirit and his body was dead, it was Joseph who came and asked Pilate for his body. May we have his body and prepare it and put it in a grave before the Sabbath day begins that evening. And he was assisted by another man. His name was Nicodemus. Both of these men, Joseph and Nicodemus, had become secret disciples of Jesus. Nobody else knew it, but they had become secret disciples of Jesus. And when it came time for the, something to be done with the body of Jesus, it wasn't going to hang and become a feast for the crows. It wasn't going to be taken out to some distant tomb where you put the criminals and where you put those that were poor. No, those two men took the body very carefully and meticulously. They prepared the body of Jesus for burial. They tucked in the spices which were intended to sweeten the aroma of a decaying body. They tucked in the, the, the spices. They were operating under rather rushed circumstances, though we know the whole story. They didn't really have to rush, did they? They wrapped that body. You wrap the body so that you keep the body together. As it decayed, the body would stay together within the wrappings. And they were intending to finish his preparation after the Sabbath on that Sunday morning. Of course, you know what happens on that Sunday morning, don't you? You know what happens on that Sunday morning, don't you? But God had promised that unlike the bodies of many others, that his son's body would not decompose. Psalm 16, verse 10, the psalmist says, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that's the grave, in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You realize that that particular verse, Psalm 16, 10, is one of the verses that Peter used in his sermon on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people came to Christ. Why? Because the death of Jesus is important. The burial of his body is important. If you don't think it's important, just, just listen to how it's described. People sometimes say, well, you know, the reason why they didn't find the body of Jesus is they just didn't go to the right tomb. Are you crazy? I mean, have you totally lost it? Forgive me, I say that in love. Are you a nut? Listen to what it says. Matthew 26, verse, uh, 27, verse 60 says that it was at the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea that had been hewn out of rock where the body was, of Jesus was laying. But listen, verse, verse 61, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Or Mark chapter 15, verse 46 says very much the same thing. But you get to verse 47, it says Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph observed where he was laid. Or you get to Luke 23, verse 53. It tells us that it was a brand new tomb. Nobody had ever laid in that tomb, laying in that tomb. In the next verse, verse 47, it says, Mary Magdalene, excuse me, the next verse, and the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. Or you get to John chapter 19, verses 41 and 42, and we're told about the tomb and that the tomb is in a garden not far from where he's crucified. But then in 11 verses, you go look it up. I looked it up. I, I, matter of fact, I did more than look it up. I marked them. 11, in, in 11 verses, nine times in 11 verses, he mentions the tomb, the tomb, the tomb, the tomb, the tomb, the tomb, the tomb. He mentions the linen cloth that had been laid on the, on the Lord's face that it was laying aside and the wrappings of his body were in the tomb. It's in the tomb where Mary looked and she saw the two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. I mean, there is no mistaking. They knew exactly where Jesus was laid. And the reason the body wasn't there wasn't because they couldn't find the right tomb. It was because Jesus had, <laughs> he had been resurrected from the grave. Amen. Only one tomb was the brand new tomb of Joseph. 
Only one tomb was guarded by the Roman soldiers. Only one tomb was sealed by the decree of Pilate. Only one tomb contained the burial cloth of the deceased Christ. Only one tomb in the history of the world has held the Son of God who's now risen from the dead. They knew exactly where his body was. Because at the core of the gospel that Paul says is of first importance is his death, which is his substitutionary atonement, his vicarious atonement, his paying for what we should rightfully pay. And in his death, he is laid where everyone can see him or know where he is laid, I should say. Everyone can know. All of his followers can know. And why? Is this fact about his burial so important? Now just, I'm almost through here, so just, are you looking at me? Just, just lean in here. Class, lean. If you're on the back row, lean further in. And why is this fact about his burial so important? It's important because Jesus not only conquered sin on the cross, he conquered death and the grave too. Matter of fact, you get to the end of chapter 15, that's what it's about. It's about the hope that believers have who have been laid in a grave somewhere. Now, I can't stop at this, this point. I, I'm not giving you the whole gospel here. I'm supposed to be a whole gospel preacher. I'm supposed to be a full gospel preacher. Well, I am. I had breakfast this morning, so I'm a full gospel preacher. <laughs> I'm supposed to be a whole gospel preacher. It's his death. It's his burial. It's his resurrection. It's that he was seen and seen and seen and seen. I've got good news for you today. The one who was crucified and buried is the same one who was resurrected from the grave. It makes it possible for you and I to have life and life eternal. Don't close your Bible. I'm not through yet. Five things you can have because of it. Five things you can have because of the death of Jesus, his burial, and his resurrection. You can have forgiveness if you'll come to Jesus. You don't have to live with the guilt, the regret. You don't have to live with that sense of a cloud hanging over you everywhere you are. You don't have to live thinking about your past and wondering when it's going to catch up with you. Today, if you come to Jesus, you can be forgiven. You can have fellowship if you'll come to Jesus. He's opened the way for you to have fellowship with God the Father. Hey, to have fellowship with God the Father. You might not want to have fellowship with me, but you'll want to have fellowship with God if you come to Jesus. You can have freedom if you come to Jesus. Some of you keep doing the same thing again and again and wondering why you don't get different results. Why don't you stop doing the same thing and come to Jesus and find the freedom that he offers? You can have a future if you'll come to Jesus. A future. I'm talking about a future in this life. More importantly, I'm talking about a future in the life to come where you got a place laid up and reserved for you in heaven. And you can have a father if you'll come to Jesus. I don't think there's anything sadder to me as a minister of the gospel than the times I talk to somebody who says, I never had a, a parent that loved me. I never had a mother or a father that cared. I've got good news for you. I can't change your physical circumstances and your parentage. I can't change to whom you were born. I can't change that. But I can tell you, you can be born again. And you'll have a father in heaven who will never overlook you. And will always be with you. I'm going to close with a story. Remember those illustrations that are like windows in a house? I was going to read something different for the closing. Now you can put your Bibles up if you want. 
I was going to read something different, but you know how social media is? It brings something to your attention and you think to yourself, wow, what I was going to say can't even begin to compare to what was just said that I read. These are the words of a mother. Are y'all with me to put your Bibles up and then look at me? These are the words of a mother in our church. The words of a lady in this congregation relating something about her son. Listen to what she says. I want to, by the way, I took his name out. I didn't, I don't want to identify him. Though she told me it was all right to do that, I'm not going to do that. This is what she said. I want to be an encouragement to all of you moms out there who are praying for your child to come to Christ, to turn their lives around. Keep those prayers going. We have struggled for a while, be it with school, depression, anxiety, hard stuff that I don't want to go into. We continue to pray, to pray the word over our son, to use every teachable moment God gives us. And it wasn't just us, it was our family, our church. I wrote out scripture, she says, and put it underneath his mattress so that when he was sleeping, I knew there was God's word underneath him. It culminated this past school year. We went through some dark times, and God used those times to get our son right where he wanted him. Now listen. Our son has changed. It was evident in what he watched, what he gave up, what he did. He professed his faith in Christ he went on a missions trip, a mission trip this summer, and he wants to be God's light to his high school in his senior year. And this is this past week, this past week, tonight, he was baptized after youth group. It's only fitting on the first day of school. She concludes, so if you're needing a miracle, if you're needing a breakthrough, if it's tough right now, if it's challenging, remember you're right where God wants you. So keep on praying.